Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we thank you again just for the opportunity to, to gather in your name, to enjoy um, just good fellowship, good conversation. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would uh, guide our discussion tonight as we uh, discuss the topic of uh, what is uh, Reformed theology as we uh, um, talk about that in light of our, our church and our church name, uh, Grace Reformed Church. Lord, we uh, pray that you would uh, bless our time here tonight with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Guide us by your word. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so how many of you um, took the time to watch that little four-minute video I sent by Legan Duncan? So did you find that helpful? So I thought that was a, a good little explanation of, of, of what Reformed theology is. Um, you know, it's an important topic, obviously, um, particularly in light of the name of our church, Grace Reformed Church. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I like that name because I just think, you know, I, I hold to Reformed theology. I have uh, for many, many, many years, probably going on 25 years um, or more. Um, and so that, that is the, the, the theological perspective from which I exegete the scriptures and, and, and teach the Bible. And so what, what is Reformed theology? When I say that I hold to that, or if we say that our church is a Reformed church, and, and that's not unique. There are a lot of Reformed churches out there. They don't always use the name. Uh, for example, all, all of your Presbyterian churches are Reformed churches. If they're uh, uh, a PCA church, Presbyterian Church of America, um, or your OPC, your Orthodox Presbyterian churches, uh, would also be... And then, of course, any church that's a part of uh, ARPCA, uh, the, um, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches in America, that's what that stands for, ARPCA. Of course, all of the churches that are part of the FIRE Association um, that we are going to be a part of um, would uh, describe themselves as Reformed churches. So this isn't something that's unique. It's not something that's new uh, or novel. So where does it, what does that mean? Well, first of all, a little historical lesson. The name comes from the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. That whole movement known as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, maybe you remember reading about that somewhere at some point. I'll give you a little historical background. Um, so, you know, for, for really most of church history, we could even say even now, for most of church history... Uh, the Catholic Church was uh, the one true church. Um, there's a reason why, you know, when we when we cite the um, uh, the the um, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, if you've ever read it, right? There's that one line that makes Baptists go, "Whoa, what does that mean?" Right? We believe in one holy Catholic Church, and everyone goes, "What?" Nowadays. In, in your Protestant churches, if they cite that, they'll change it to universal, right? They'll put that in brackets. Because that's what Catholic means. The word Catholic, by definition, simply means universal, right? And so they were saying, we believe in one universal church, um, which we do. There is only one church. Regardless of your denominational affiliation, there is one church of God. All believers in every denomination that is a true denomination, every church that is a true church, all believers 
are part of the one body of Christ, the one church. And so, for the better part of church history, there was one church. And it was a true church. When you go back to the days of Augustine, when you go back to the days of Tertullian, um, you know, that was the true church. They were part of that church. But as time went on, really beginning about beginning about the fifth century um, to the fifth to the uh, the fifteenth century, fourteenth century, uh, the church began to move away from the gospel, and um, and 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 part of why that is is that the the, the scriptures were translated into uh, the Latin, um, the Latin Vulgate. Which was fine because at the time, toward the end of the, the Roman Empire, before the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, Rome, the official language of Rome is, is Latin. That's what they spoke, was Latin. And so the Roman Empire spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world and all the way up at least to the southern border of Scotland. And so to translate the Bible into Latin made sense. That was actually the common language. But as time went on, the only people that knew Latin was the priests within the church. You know, only the priesthood knew they could read and understand Latin. Your average person did not read Latin. And so the church service, the mass, everything was done in Latin. Nobody could understand it. Um, so that was one problem. Uh, but then they also began to adopt um, a lot of superstitious practices. Uh, they developed the whole practice of, of indulgences. Um, you know, and that is that you could people could earn um, righteousness uh, from uh, Christ by means of <laughs> do we need to stop and <laughs> I, you know, just there he is I mean he's, just, he's checking everybody out so, checking him out. so we, we um, so um So all of these these practices that were really unbiblical began to develop. And by the time you get to the 1300s, um, there are certain men that begin to question, why does the church practice the things that it practices? Why does it believe what it believes? Namely, the whole idea of um, earning righteousness. Um, The Catholic Church came to believe that salvation was a matter of Faith plus works, right? You need faith, but you also have to earn righteousness by means of fulfilling the sacraments of the church. And there are seven sacraments of the church, and I don't have to go through them all, but baptism is the first one, which washes away the original stain of sin, is what they say. Of course, um, when, when you take the uh, communion is another one. Marriage is, a, is a, a sacrament of the church. All of these things earn righteousness, and you have to earn your way to heaven. Um, which is why the whole idea of purgatory is then developed by the Catholic Church. Because the question becomes, when you go that route, how do you know you've earned enough righteousness to get into heaven? How much righteousness do you need to basically outdo all of the sin that you've committed? Well, no one can answer that question. And so the idea is that people who are Catholics go into purgatory... And, uh, and then they remain in purgatory where their remaining sins are purged from them. And ultimately, at some point, they could be there for thousands or millions of years, they will be released from purgatory and enter into heaven. 
Well, you have certain men. The first is a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe is known as the, the morning star of the Reformation. He's born in the early 1300s, dies around 1386 or 85 or so. And uh, he is a, um, an Englishman. He's trained at Oxford University and um, is a theologian. And he begins to uh, uh, question the teachings of the church. Because as he studies the Bible, he begins to realize that, you know, what I see in Scripture is it's salvation. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, that's what I see. That's what he saw. Um, he also believed that the Bible ought to be in the language of the average person. Um, his argument was that, you know, God spoke to Moses in a language that Moses could understand. You know, Jesus spoke to the apostles in a language that they could understand. All of the apostles wrote the New Testament in a language that was understood. So why is the Bible maintained in Latin and nobody can read it for themselves? So John Wycliffe, of course, translated the first Bible into the English language. And he began to question the authority of the Pope. He began to question the practice of indulgences. Um, he was threatened uh, with you know, um, being burned at the stake. Ultimately, he lived and died. Uh, but... Uh, like 40 years after his death, um, the Catholic Church was so upset they dug up his bones and they burned his bones, and then they 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 cast his ashes into into the the Swift River. Um, but after after Wycliffe, you've got a guy who comes along whose name is John Huss. John Huss begins teaching many of the same things that John Wycliffe did. Huss argued that again, justification is by faith alone, salvation is by faith alone, um, and uh, you know, there, there's no such thing as works righteousness. Um, and, uh, and yes, the Bible ought to be in the language of the average person. And, of course, John Huss was not as lucky as John Wycliffe, John Huss. And his name is actually pronounced uh, Jan Hus. Uh, but, you know, most of us pronounce it John Huss. Um, he was burned at the stake by, by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, as, as a heretic, he was condemned, of course, about... Uh, almost 500 years later, I think it's Pope, Pope John Paul II actually went to Poland and, and uh, uh, to the Czech Republic and, and issued an official apology for the church having burned John Huss at the stake 500 years earlier. Um, but, but John Huss was also basically saying, look, that we need to come back to the gospel. We need to recover the gospel. We've lost sight of the gospel. We've embraced all of these superstitions. The church had come to believe that Scripture alone is not enough for salvation. Rather, it's the Scriptures and the teachings of the church. And what the Catholic Church argued then, and even today, that if there seems to be a conflict between what we read in the Bible and what the, the official teachings of the Catholic Church are, then the teachings of the church trumps Scripture. Right? And so these guys are known as reformers because they wanted to reform the church. They wanted to fix the Catholic Church. Um, they didn't really want to abandon the church or try to start something new. This is particularly true of Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther is usually credited with launching the Protestant Reformation. We call John Wycliffe the morning star of the Reformation because it kind of started there. But Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517... Uh, that just created a firestorm that really spread rapidly across all of Europe and then into England and then across to North America 
to the United States. I mean, that's where it really, um, you know, Wy Wycliffe and Haas didn't have as big of an, of an impact um, as as uh, uh, Luther and Calvin and John Knox did, who followed in the footsteps of Luther. Um, what were the time frames with Calvin? Luther and Knox. Okay, I get them mixed up. Calvin, Calvin, and John Knox are about the same age. They're both born around 15, 15, 15, 10. Okay. So right around the time that Luther is nailing his ninety-five thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, and by that time, you know, Luther has a doctorate degree. He was born in the late, uh, late fourteen hundreds, um, and uh, Calvin and Knox are are just coming into the world when Luther is starting the Protestant Reformation. Um, and, uh, and so, of course, Luther, you're probably familiar with the story there. He, does, he battles with uh, the entire Catholic Church. And, and again, Luther's thing, though, as well, is he's really saying the same thing that Wycliffe said and the same thing that John Huss said, is that the Scriptures ought to be in the language of the average person. You know, every Christian has the right to read the Bible, study it for themselves, and he believed that justification is by faith alone. Right? It's by faith alone. There are other things that came out of the Protestant Reformation as well. Um, those, that, that was the, those were the two main issues. Um, that, that Scripture is the highest authority. Not the church, not the Pope. Scripture is the highest authority. And justification is by faith alone. Some other things that come out of the Reformation, though, some other theological truths... Um, is the, the, the doctrine of total depravity. We'll talk about that uh, next week. Um, the, the, the idea of unconditional election, the idea of perseverance of the saints, um, that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, these are all theological, important theological doctrines that come out of the Protestant um, Reformation. And, of course, John Calvin and John Knox carry that forward. Calvin is, is born in, in France. He's trained, has uh, three degrees from three different universities. He starts a, uh, a Reformation city in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, he wants to... He wants a, um, because in that day and age, you also have to remember that the idea of church and state being separate was foreign to people. Um, you know, the, the, the religion of the king should be the religion of the people. Um, or the religion of the government should be the religion of the people. That's just the way they all thought. So when Calvin starts uh, a reformational movement in Geneva, uh, Protestants are flocking to Geneva because it's a safe haven. And, and so the entire city, the entire government, not just the church, the city of Geneva, is really being governed by um, Protestant reformational theology. Um, after so many years, uh, they ended up firing Calvin. Uh, they send him packing. Uh, but then like four years later, they ask him to come back. And so he does. Um, but uh, so, so Calvin is, is doing a reformation there. Ulrich Zwingli is also leading a, a reformation in, um, in a, um, Switzerland. And then you've got John Knox, who leads a reformation in Scotland. John Knox is credited with founding the, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland which ends up coming over to the United States. And so all Presbyterianism starts from John Knox. John Knox was a very close friend of John Calvin. Went to Geneva, spent time with John Calvin, studied with him, studied under him, brought all of that theology back to, uh, back to Scotland. And then that ends up spreading down 
into England um, and in, in, impacting Baptists, and you end up with what they called particular Baptists. And, uh, you know, particular Baptists were individuals who believed in a particular atonement, that Christ died for a particular people. These were the kind of Baptists that ended up writing the 1644 Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1646, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. But the idea then is that the Reformers, where that word comes from, is that they weren't trying to abandon the church or start a new church. Luther himself admitted that he loved the Catholic Church and that he wanted to fix the church. He wanted to repair the church. He did not want to leave the church, but the church was not going to be repaired. They were not going to be fixed. Uh, They would have burned them at the stake if they had a chance to. Um, They almost did uh, at the Diet of Worms, but he was rescued by Prince uh, Frederick, uh, who rescued him and brought him back to his his castle. Um, And so from the Reformation... From the Reformation, what we, what we get are certain theological truths that basically define what Reformed theology is and what a Reformed church is. And what that is is, namely, that the Scriptures are the inerrant, authoritative, and trustworthy Word of God, and they are the highest authority within the church. Right? It's the Scriptures. It's not, it's not a pastor, it's not a pope, it's not a bishop, it's not some governing body somewhere, um, we submit to the Word of God, and that, that is the highest authority. So, uh, sola scriptura, you may have heard those five solas that are, that are talked about. Um, reformational theology is the idea that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, some of you may have heard this, you may have even seen it, it's up on our dining room wall, the five solas you sometimes hear talked about with reformational theology and that is, um, the first is um, um, uh, sola, sola gracia is the first and then you have sola fide and then you have sola Christus, then you have sola scriptura and then you have sola dio gloria and now these weren't coined by the reformers, we don't have any Writings of any of the reformers that they, you know, wrote these out, and we don't actually know where they came from. Where these five solas originated, we don't know for sure. Um, but these five solas have come to represent really the ideas, the important ideas that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And what those are: the first one is sola gratia, which stands for grace alone. The second one is sola fide, which is faith alone. The third one is solus Christus, which is Christ alone. The fourth one is sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And then the fifth one is sola dio gloria, which is to God be the glory alone. And that's really a good summary then of, you know, Reformed theology. And that is that we believe that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone and to God be the glory alone. That is that God gets all of the glory for our salvation. And that's where we can begin to talk about the whole idea of the sovereignty of God in salvation, the sovereignty of God over all things. Um, because that those truths, all of the reformers did hold to that. Calvin, Knox, particularly Calvin, Knox, and uh, Luther 
held to the idea that salvation was a work of God alone. Um, In fact, one of Luther's favorite famous quotes is um, someone asked him, he was debating this very point, and uh, someone said to him, so are you you saying that human beings contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation? And Luther said, no, you misunderstand me. We do contribute something to our salvation. We contribute sin and resistance, right? Um, Luther is the one who wrote the classic, I mean, it's, it's the classic text on... Um, you know what we dis- what we describe as total depravity, and he wrote the book called "The Bondage of the Will." And uh, what he describes in that book from Scripture is that is that sin impacted human beings in such a way that unbelievers, in and of themselves, are incapable of choosing for God. There has to be a work of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the gospel, to open their eyes. To the glory of the Christ, because per Ephesians chapter two, all human. We'll talk more about this next week, but you know, all human beings are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so, when you look at those five solis, I mean, the the Reformation is salvation is by grace alone, right? Notice in all of those solis, there's nothing about human beings contributing, right? It's grace alone, by faith alone, not faith plus works, faith alone. In Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, and to God be the glory alone. God gets all of the credit for our salvation. It's not that God does 99.9% of the work and we have to contribute this one little part. It's that God does all of the work for our salvation. So, when we talk about um, you know, being a, a Reformed church or holding to Reformed theology... What we are in essence saying is that, one, we, we stand in the tradition of the Reformers and that we believe Scripture is the highest authority within the church. We believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation, the sovereignty of God over all things. And we believe that salvation is, that justification is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone and to God be the glory alone. And that's not something that every church would hold to. Now, that's not to say that only those who hold to Reformed theology are a true church. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, but I do think it's important that we give God all of the glory when it comes to our salvation. Um, God gets 100%. The, the greatest picture, the best picture we see of salvation, I think, is a picture of Lazarus being raised from the dead. You know, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what did Lazarus contribute to him being made alive? Nothing, right? He was dead, Jesus spoke, and Lazarus is made alive, right? All glory is given to Christ for his physical life. The same is true of spiritual life, but we can talk about that more as we go on. But that's really what Reformed theology is um, in kind of a nutshell and a short explanation. Um, what are your questions or comments? Surely there's got to be some. Do you have this typed up somewhere? <laughs> no, I don't have it typed up but anywhere. It's recorded. Can you get on that? <laughs> it is. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, we're... We're, uh, we're... We've recorded it, so we'll put it on... Um, I knew it wouldn't. This wouldn't be that long. Uh, I thought it would raise more questions. 
you know, some of the things that I talked about, we're going we're gonna to talk about them in, in, in the upcoming weeks. I want to take those one piece at a time. Had I tried to put it all together, then, then it definitely would have been a much longer. Are you going to break down the solace? Are you going to break down the tulip? What do you, what do you mean we're going to talk about things? Uh, well, next week we're going to talk about total depravity. Okay. And we need to understand that. Um, and then I can't remember the following week. Because here's what, here's what the reformers understood. Uh, I'll get to you in a minute, Jack. Let me just let me answer your question real quick. Here's what the reformers understood: is that is that there are two lenses through which we interpret Scripture, and this is true of all Christians. There are two lenses through which we interpret Scripture. One is how we understand God. What is our understanding of who God is? And the second is how we understand man, unbelievers in particular. What is our understanding of human nature? Because how you understand those two things, those two concepts, is going to impact everything else you believe in Scripture. It's going to impact the entire way you interpret the Bible. In other words, do, you, do we believe in a God who is in heaven, you know, sort of on his knees, pulling his hair out, begging and pleading with people to just put their faith in me and Christ and, oh my word, the world is a mess, you know? Is he, is, he, is he just frustrated, discouraged with how world history is going? Or is the God of the Bible a God who sits upon his throne as king and he rules over all of creation sovereignly? That everything in this world, as chaotic as it may seem, everything in this world is moving exactly as God has foreordained it. There's one of two views, and there are some Christians out there who believe God is quite frustrated. You know, he's quite discouraged with people. The other lens is, is humanity. Do we believe that human beings, unbelievers in particular, are, hum- are unbelievers floundering in their sin, you know, waiting for somebody to throw them a life raft, you know, that's Jesus, you know, and you know, say, climb into the life raft and I'll pull you in, or are unbelievers floating dead in their sin? Right? Are they floundering? Are they, are they sick in bed, wheezing, and they need someone to give them the medicine that's the gospel? Or are unbelievers dead and lying in a coffin? Um, because those are the two lenses. How you understand humanity and how you understand God will impact every other point of theology. It will impact your, your view on the church. It will impact your view of worship. It will impact your view of evangelism. It will impact your view of the end times. It will impact your view of the gifts. It will impact your entire view of redemptive history, of what God is doing in redemptive history. And so those two topics, we have got to get right. You know, how do we understand God and how do we understand humanity? And we're going to talk about those one at a time. Jack. Who's that Knox dude? Who? Who's the Knox dude? John Knox. John Knox was a reformer from Scotland who spent time with John Calvin in Geneva and then went back to Scotland and started the Presbyterian Church. So he is one of the one of the reformers, yes. And someone yes. Or are they dead, lying in a coffin? Which they are. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Sounds like you've read Ephesians or something. I don't know. Shannon. Um, okay, do you remember where the You is? have a, yeah. either like a, a picture or a series of portraits I'll in your office. I'll come help you. And I just, I feel like I remember yeah. when I was in there interviewing for membership, I was like, there's one or two where I'm like, oh, I can't pinpoint who that is. So is it is Wycliffe one of them? Yes. John Wycliffe Luther, is one of them. Yes. And Calvin. Yes. And who are the others? Uh, Luther's five Knox. or six. L- Luther is on there. John Calvin, John Knox, John Wycliffe, and Jonathan Edwards. Okay. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So, Jonathan Edwards, I always think it's interesting they put him on there because he technically wasn't part of the Protestant Reformation movement, but he certainly falls in line with the Reformers. Yeah, he... Yes, yeah, he, say, he definitely time. stands in the tradition of the reformers. And some people would argue that um, if you were going to give a beginning and end date to, like if you were going to categorize an era, when did it begin and when did it sort of end, even though reform theology continues, when did that whole Protestant Reformation come to an end? Some would put Jonathan Edwards at the end of that, you know, because he brought a Reformation to North America. He brought the Reformation to North America. And so that may be why they why they have him the why they have him on there. Right, right, right. Yes, Jonathan. Uh, I'm sure this is like a huge rabbit trail, so, and this may be another time. But like, so they went from the Roman Catholic Church to the Reformed, you know, and not everybody I realize did that. Then how do we how do we get to the point where there's all these churches today? Like where it's just like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. It seems like they've gone. Course of history shows, I like, guess, but it's just gone the other way. Yes, yes. Well, they, well, they, they began to, they definitely began to splinter um, once the Reformation took hold, and that was what the the Catholic Church worried about. And they said, you know, if you if you put that 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 the Bible into the common language of people, right? Then basically, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is going to be starting a church everywhere, right? Um, and uh, and so that was their big that was a big concern, and the reformers knew that that was a possibility, but still they believed that every Christian had the right to read and study the Word of God in their own language, and so so yes, churches started begin you know different denominations you know you you started you get your uh, um, you know your, uh, your your Anabaptists, you know, start to spring up. Uh, you know your 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 Quakers, your Puritans. Um, you know, diff- all different branches of Baptists. Um, you know your Lutherans, your Methodists. I mean, they all. You know, but what we all have in common. So we still have two broad groups of Christianity, right? We still have two broad groups. You've got Catholics and Protestants. <laughs> Right, you've got Catholics and Protestants, and what your Protestants all have in common, even though we disagree on a lot of different things, and this is where we can say that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ when we talk about Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and you know certain branches of Methodists, Methodism, um, you know all of these different um, denominations, your non-denominational churches, um, your Pentecostal churches, your Assemblies of God churches. What we all have in common um, are really uh, two important things. 
Um, there are others, but what distinguishes us from Catholics, let me put it that way, because there are things that we still agree with the Catholics on, right? Like the Trinity. They got the Trinity right. I mean, the Trinitarian theology, we're in agreement with them, right? They've, they've got that right. Um, but the... But the, yeah, the things that the things that that, w- that distinguish us are two. Number one, the inerrancy and the supreme authority of Scripture. Right, all of your Protestant denominations are going to agree to that. Your Assemblies of God, right? Your Baptists, your Presbyterians, your Lutherans are all going to agree with the inerrancy and the supremacy of Scripture. That is the highest authority. And the second thing that all Protestants would agree on is justification by faith alone. That we are saved by faith alone. You hear the gospel, you believe it, you're saved, right? All Protestants would say that. Catholic Church would say that's not true, right? You have minimally, you have to be baptized. That's why they baptize their infants, because the Catholic Church will say that an infant who dies before being baptized is not going to heaven or even purgatory. It is so important in the Catholic religion. That as soon as that baby is born, you have got to get that child baptized immediately. That's right. It it uh, it removes the stain of original sin, and unless that happens, that infant will perish eternally, right? Um, but Protestants disagree with that. And by the way, that's where that word comes from as well. We talk about the Protestant Reformation. It comes from the word to protest, right? The reformers were protesting the false theology of the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that, that, that we have to do certain works in order to get into heaven, in order to earn righteousness, the, the reformers, the Protestant reformers says, that's wrong, right? The, Jesus said, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. That's John five twenty four, right? Um, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Right? I mean, it's all over the New Testament. It's simply believe and you are saved. But from about the year 500 to about the year 1500, the Roman Catholic Church just kept going sideways. Right? They kept going off track so that by the time you get to the 1300s and John Wycliffe, uh, John Wycliffe described it as the church was living in darkness. I mean, the, yeah, the church was living in darkness, uh, controlled by superstition, and uh, the, the, the teachings of the church that were simply false. And so the reformers, the Protestant reformers, were trying to bring the church back on track. Which is why another way that the Protestant Reformation is oftentimes described is it was a recovery of the gospel. The Reformation was a recovery of the gospel. Because by the time you get to Wycliffe and John Huss, the Catholic Church is saying salvation is by faith plus works. Right? Faith plus works equals eternal life. Um, and the reformers said, no, that's, that's absolutely wrong. It's, it's faith. They said faith equals works and eternal life. Right? That when you get saved, that turns into a life of holiness and eternal life. And so they, the Catholics had the works on the wrong side of the equation. They have faith plus works equals uh, eternal life. And the reformer said, no, it's faith alone in Christ alone, which then equals good works and eternal life. So is that why they still think that a priest has the capability of absolving them from their sins? In the Catholic, you know how they go? Yes. Because they don't, they don't approach Christ 
as mediator to the Father God, they go to the priest, right? And they think that they can absolve them of their sins. Yes, because yes, because the the, the priest is the representative of Christ um, to that parish. I mean, ultimately, that's what the Pope is. The Pope is the vicar of Christ upon earth. When he speaks, he speaks. When he speaks, um, with with in his position of authority, like not when he's just out walking around, but when he speaks um, from a position of authority, uh, when he writes out a papal decree, uh, the church understands that the Pope is speaking the very words of God. He is speaking the very words of Christ. He is the mouthpiece of Christ. Yes, yes. And so the reformers rejected that. They said, no, we, God speaks to us through his word. Right? God speaks to us through His Word. The Word is inerrant. The Word is infallible. The Word is trustworthy. Not men. Not men. And so that's the big difference between Protestants and Catholics. I mean, you can't trust a sinful man to absolve you of your sins. Right. Right. Yes, Jack. Uh, a Quaker is a uh, group of uh, believers that started in... Um, Really, in North America, um, they they have their roots back to Methodism. They are they kind of splintered off of Methodism, but they're a group of individuals, and they were called Quakers. They're very closely related to the Amish as well, but they're called that because um, when they would preach and when they would worship, they would um, get very excited, and they would s- sort of start to shake, and they. We're sort of maybe your early version of, of some Pentecostal churches today. Um, and so people called them Quakers, kind of as a way of making fun of them, but they just kind of adopted it as a, pa- as a badge of honor. Um, but Yes, they are pacifists. They don't believe, they don't believe in war. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But any, yeah. Any any questions about the Protestant Reformation? I don't really want to get into a discussion of, you know, just church history in general. Um, any questions about the Protestant Reformation or Reformed theology, or you know, because I do think that's important. If we're going to, you know, be Grace Reformed Church, and someone says, "Well, what's with Reformed?" Right? What does that mean? Well, we're a Reformed Church. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we stand in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, which means, namely that we believe in the inerrancy, the trustworthiness, and the supreme authority of Scripture, and we believe that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, you know, and according to the Scriptures alone, to God be the glory alone. You know. Is there any, um, so of the, all of the, diff, the five that you mentioned, you know, so Jonathan Edwards is kind of a little outside of the box, yeah. but of the five that you mentioned, are there stark differences between any of their beliefs, or are they all pretty much on board with the same thoughts? And what is the gist of those main thoughts? Well, they were on board with like your major points of doctrine, but there were differences in um, in, in things that did divide them. You know, yes, like the Lord's Supper, for example. I mean, Luther's view of the Lord's Supper was rejected by John Calvin. You know, Calvin held to what we describe it as, today we would call it the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. Um, You know, Luther, um, again, being very in love with the Catholic Church, I mean, he was a monk, became a priest, and then became a professor and taught. 
Um, so he was very well steeped in Roman Catholic theology. Um, you know, Luther disagreed with the Catholics' view of the Lord's Supper, that which is um, transubstantiation, that when the priest says those certain words during the Mass, that the bread and the wine are literally changed into blood and flesh, literally. You are literally eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ. Luther said, you know, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine because it is bread and wine. Nonetheless, Luther struggled. He did struggle with the idea where Jesus says, you know, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Right? This is, this is my body. Um, right. Luther and he was the other one he disagreed with? He disagreed with, well, he disagreed with the Catholic Church, first off. He disagreed with the Catholic Church believed in transubstantiation. And Luther said that's wrong. But he believed that when Jesus said, this is my body, that had to mean something. So he, what his view is known as consubstantiation. And he believed that Christ was present in the elements so that we are eating Christ and drinking his blood, but the elements are not transformed. Right? So con, the Latin for with, Christ is with the elements. We are eating Christ, drinking his blood, but the elements are not transformed. No, Calvin had a different view. Calvin disagreed with that and said, you know, Christ remains in bodily form, seated at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, how can he, how can he even be with the elements? I mean, in, a, in any kind of physical way, because that's what Luther believed. In a physical way, he's in the elements. It's just, the elements just aren't changed. And Calvin said, how can he be in the elements in every Lord's Supper, in every church, when in bodily form, he remains seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so Calvin said, no, that's not right. Um, you know, he, he, he's not physically in the elements. We're not physically in any way eating Christ or drinking his blood. Nonetheless, Calvin did argue that in a spiritual way, by means of the Holy Spirit, Christ is present with the elements by means of the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, we are supping on Christ. Um, and then you've got another reformer known as uh, Ulrich Zwingli. And Ulrich Zwingli held a completely different view. That's what Baptist... His was the, the symbolism view. And Ulrich Zwingli said, no, it's just symbolic. I mean, Jesus isn't with it in any way. It's just like baptism. It's just a picture. Um, and so that would be a big difference um, there. Um, so there, there were some points of differences. Um, and that's why you've got Lutherans are not the same as Presbyterians. They... Um, you know they hold to slightly different uh, different views. Um, yes, Jack. So they literally thought that they were eating Christ. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know a good book that kind of breaks that Cross all down. Yes. Cross of Christ. So um, and yeah, we, you know. Cross of, well, he you probably referenced Cross of Christ in your book. Yeah, yes, the Cross of Christ by John Stott. Um, and so yeah, so that. So that view of Calvin is the view that I hold to, the Reformed view. Um, I, think, I think the Lord's Supper is, is more than symbolism. It's not just a picture of what Christ did. That in a very real and spiritual way, we are supping with Christ. In a very real and spiritual way, we are eating and drinking Christ, though not in a physical way. He's not physically in the elements, but in a spiritual way, in a spiritual dimension that is beyond our understanding, um, we are taking in Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. So it's not... The Lutheran view, certainly not the Catholic view, but it's also not the Zwinglian view, which is just symbolism. Um, it's more than symbolism for sure. Yes, Brianna. Your brain is scary. <laughs> oh. 
Yeah, well, I don't know about that. There are things I don't know, and trust me, I, I will tell you that. I'll just like, I don't know. I'll get back to you on that one. Um, yes, yeah, Shannon. Are Reformed and Calvinism interchangeable? People seem to get more sensitive at the term Calvinism than they do. Don't well, you me. tell me. <laughs> yes. You, t- I mean, you, you may have experienced something different, but Calvinism and Reformed. Um, no, I don't, I don't think they're quite interchangeable. Um, I think you can be I think you can be a Calvinist and not be reformed, but you can't be reformed um, and and not be a Calvinist if that makes sense. And the reason being is because because here's here's the other part and, and I'll go back to Legan Duncan. Legan Duncan mentioned something that was really good. He talked about that reformed theology is holding to uh, that that when we say that we're reformed. He threw in a couple of additional things that I haven't mentioned yet, but I agree with him that, number one, standing in the Reformed tradition means that we are a confessional church, right? And that's why we have a statement of faith. Um, you know, not all churches do. Not all Protestant churches do. There are some that just, they are against it. Um, standing in the Reformed tradition means that we are a confessional church. We confess our faith in writing because we want to be clear about what we believe. Um, and so we want to write that down. We want to confess our our faith. So being a Reformed church is, is being a confessional church. Being a Reformed church is holding to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Being a Reformed church is holding to the, 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 the five solas, which does go with Calvinism. Because that the, the last one, to God be the glory alone, that would fall into... And I... And I I don't really like using the phrase Calvinism because that can be defined in so many different ways. Yeah. And, and a lot of people misunderstand it and it can be debated. Um, I would rather say that um, holding to Reformed theology means that we believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Right? The sovereignty of God in salvation. Can you repeat um, what you said though? You can be a da da but you can't be... Yeah, yeah I, I think I think so. Let me not use that phrase. Let me say this: I think you can hold to the sovereignty of God and salvation, and not be a reformed church. Because you could not be confessional, for instance. You could not be confessional. Or here's the other one: is that standing in the reformed tradition is holding to some form of covenantalism when we talk about redemptive history, right? So it's it's holding to some form of covenantalism. And that's why I said last week, you know, I would ascribe to New Covenant theology and again, sometimes described as progressive covenantalism or fulfillment theology, um, which is very close to covenant theology, but no, not quite the same, right? And that's because, and the reason we would say that is because covenant theology does come out of the Protestant Reformation. Covenant theology is defined by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right? The Westminster Confession of Faith is where covenant theology comes from. Um, in writing, it doesn't exist prior to the Westminster Confession. Right? But you can have churches that hold to the sovereignty of God and salvation, but yet would not describe themselves rightly so as being reformed. And I, I think a classic example would be John MacArthur and Grace Community Church. He definitely believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation. That is clear. 
but he does not hold to a form of covenantalism when it comes to redemptive history. Therefore, they would not describe themselves as a Reformed church. I don't think MacArthur would describe himself as a Reformed Christian um, for that reason. But he definitely believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation, for sure. Um, so, confessional church, scripture is absolute authority, five solas, some form of covenantalism. Yes, and yes, yep, that's it. Four, okay. Yeah, some form of covenantalism. And, and, and those things... <laughs> is what puts me and our church in the Reformed tradition, um, is, is holding to those, to those things. So, um, so, yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. So would it be too simplified to say that we, you know, in compa- I guess in comparison to other world religions, perhaps this would be a good way, but to, in terms of, like, different Protestant religions, maybe not, um, or breakouts, but that we believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, we take what is in there, we don't add to it, we don't take it away, and, you know, whatever the Bible kind of is saying, that particular sense is, is kind of how, you know, I'm, it's hard to, to, I guess, simplify from what I'm saying, but, because um, it seems like, you know, Catholicism and, like, lots of other places will take stuff that's not actually in the Bible, mm-hmm. and where it's more Reformed and more, you know, uh, even, I guess, Protestants to some degree really just stick to what the Bible says and not much else. Yeah, so I think was your question what distinguishes Protestantism from every other religion in the world? Well, is it too simplified to say that we basically just look at the Bible as the true definition like of what the church is? Yeah. 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 Like in a, right, in, a one in like a one-sentence blur, yeah, yeah, because when you start getting into covenantalism, you know, I get that's what kind of makes up the Reformed side of it. Right. But is it too simplified to say that we just take the Bible for what it says, don't add to it, take it away? Okay, but you're talking about Protestants. Yes. Pro- all all, all Protestants. In general, to some degree. When he's saying when someone asks, what's a Reformed church? Mm-hmm. Is it too simplistic to say it is? It is. Because it is. Mr. Christ would say that. Right. That's why they're not confessional. All of, all of your Protestant churches would say that we only hold to the Scriptures. Now, once you start to get into the theology... That can be debated with some of them. Um, but all Protestant churches would say, we hold to the Bible alone and nothing else. So that doesn't really define um, Reformed churches or Reformed Christians. What defines Reformed churches is really, you know, I mean, if someone were to ask me that, I mean, just in, in very simplified. Someone said, you know, in like 10 words or less, how do you define Reformed theology? Right. Okay. Ten words or less. How do you define Reformed theology or a Reformed church? Um, we are a confessional church that holds to the inerrancy and supreme authority of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the complete sovereignty of God in salvation. Right. So really what you could do is you could say you could say the whole five solas and we write it down. That's the confessional, right? You, you, could, you could do that, yeah. That I mean, the, and that's why the five solas are so they're popular. Yeah. Because that, that really is concise, you know, but they're in Latin, so then you have to explain them, right? You, you could say them, but then you got to explain them. Um, but, but yeah, the, the five solas, the only thing that's missing from the five solas is, you know, there's no reference to, to being confessional. Well, that's why I said, and we write it down. And there's no reference to being, to holding to some form of covenantalism when it comes to redemptive history. Um, but that's, that's essentially what Reformed theology is. 
What distinguishes Protestantism, I want to go back to Jason's question, what distinguishes Protestantism from every other religion in the world, and this is what makes, Protest, this is what makes Protestant, Protestantism so unique, and, and in my mind so convincing that this is the truth. Um, and, and this is coming from someone that, you know, I grew up in a Catholic home, I grew up in a Catholic church, and... You know, someone shared the gospel with me, and it was different from what I had been taught in the Catholic Church. Um, but then I began to realize that there's a lot of religions out there. How do we know that this one is the right one? I mean, what makes yeah. this one so unique? And here's what makes Protestantism so unique. It is the only religious system in the world that says that human beings contribute nothing to our salvation. Did you get that from my email? No. <laughs> Human beings contribute nothing to our, our salvation. And that's true of all Protestant churches. Now we can, you know, you can debate that with Arminians that, well, you kind of really believe. But when you ask a Protestant Christian, how, do, how does one get saved? Right? Whether you're talking about you know, Assemblies of God or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Baptist, you, know, you ask a Protestant, how does one get saved or get into heaven? They're going to say, Put your faith in Jesus. Right? That's all they're going to say. Put your faith in Jesus. No one else believes that. Catholics don't believe it. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe it. Mormons don't believe it. Muslims certainly don't believe it. Um, you know, Hindus, Buddhists, you know, people who hold to Confucianism, uh, Shintoism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism. I mean, all of these different religions that are out there, they all have a form of work salvation. Every single one of them. It's you got to believe something and then you've got to work really hard to, I don't know, go to heaven or nirvana or be reincarnated as a cow if it's Hinduism, right? You got to live the good life. You got to be a good person to get where you want to go. Protestant Christianity is the only uh, belief system that says no works at all. No works at all. What's that? Right, right. In, in the sense that we understand it, they they would disagree. Right, the Catholics would say, "Sure, we have a Savior. Jesus is our Savior." Mormons would disagree, and Jehovah's Witnesses. But at the end of the day, when you talk to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Catholics, it's you got to have faith in the Savior. But then you have to do A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z, whatever the case may be to get to where you want to go and Protestants are the only ones that say faith in Christ that's it your Savior is sufficient theirs is not right yeah because when anything else right. can negate sovereignty right that's one thing too if you ever have to debate Jehovah's Witness or Mormon in particular because they're kind of the door knockers especially for Mormons always keep your eye on Christ because Christ is not in the position that we believe he is which is the Lord and Savior mm-hmm. the King yeah. Exactly something else. Right. Right. So you never, never don't go anywhere else. Stay on Christ because yep. that's the, that's that's the only around. way you could ever possibly be true. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Now within the Protestant church, we have people that believe in election and those that don't. Right. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And they would be considered Protestants because remember the word Protestant simply comes from the fact that the reformers were protesting, namely, they were protesting two things. One, that there's any authority higher than Scripture. 
and they were protesting the, the idea that salvation was by faith plus works. Right? And all Protestant churches would agree with those two things. Right? So, Ar- Arminian churches are Protestant churches. They fall into that category, though they're not Reformed. They don't fall into the Reformed tradition because they would reject the idea of sole Dio gloria, to God be the glory alone, right? Um, they would say that we contribute something to our salvation. Um, that's a different topic, although happy to continue that conversation uh, tonight as well. But why don't we uh, close in prayer and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop this. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, as we stand here um, as the, uh, the beneficiaries of all those who have gone before us, Lord, uh, men who literally have given their lives like John Huss and uh, many others who risked their lives, Lord, uh, to fight for the truth of your word, to fight for the gospel, to fight for um, the right of every child of God to be able to hold the Bible in their own hands, in their own language, to read it for ourselves, to study it for ourselves. Uh, Lord, we, um, uh, we thank you uh, uh, for those men. We know that it was you who placed them where they are, that, who, who gave them the intelligence and the fortitude to do what they did. And uh, we thank you for that, Lord God. And uh, Father, we uh, pray um, that as we begin uh, our little church that uh, stands in the long line of tradition of Reformed churches and Reformed believers um, who believe uh, that ultimately our salvation is, is totally and entirely due to your grace and mercy and love and that you get all of the glory, all of the credit, and we get none. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would uh, bless uh, this newfound work, that you would bless our little flock, that you would uh, cause us to increase in our knowledge and in our love for you and, and deepen our worship of you, Lord God. And uh, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Are we going to-